0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Okay, we're going to start our session. A recap for anybody who might have accidentally wandered in thinking they were at the Courtauld. You're in the portico rooms of Somerset House, you're at the Editorial Intelligence and Partners Comment Conference, and we're just about to start the communications session. I'm now going to introduce William Eccleshare, the President and CEO of Clear Channel International, who are the platform partner for this particular event. He has... One of the most illustrious careers, both in advertising in this country and also with a stint at McKinsey, and he now heads the world's largest outdoor media advertising company, and he's therefore well-placed to lead you through the next session. William.
1: Thank you, Julia. Well, after a a very, very serious and erudite first session, we think we're slightly the light entertainment uh, after the break. Um, We all very clearly have a a special relationship with each other and as a panel we're certainly going to be punching above our weight over the next hour as we um, attempt to answer this challenging question which is of course like like most conference titles, it is based on a very questionable premise. Uh, Still leading the world, British communications uh, does of course assume that, that we ever did. And I guess that is uh, a question which certainly in my own industry we, um, we, we trouble ourselves about. The advertising industry is notoriously um, self-obsessed and um, the British advertising industry particularly so, I think. Um, we have for many, many years believed that we lead the world despite vast evidence to the contrary. Um, I think it's true to say as an ad industry that we had a a kind of golden period um, after the, after the wonderful, um, the wonderful period so beautifully, uh, beautifully brought to life in Mad Men for those who've watched it. Uh, advertising is nothing like that, but it's a fantastic television drama. Um, it brought uh, American advertising certainly dominated during the 60s and the 70s. It then was dragged down by um, an excessive belief in, in research, which really killed all creativity and, um, and stifled the business, at which point the, the Brits, I think, saw an opportunity. And there was a wonderful period in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, when small local advertising agencies like, like Collett Dickinson Pierce or Bozmissimi Pollitt tapped into British culture, British, um, British comedy and British drama, and produced wonderful and memorable advertising. Uh, like the work for for Cadbury Smash or the Heineken campaign or the Benson and Hedges campaigns, which I think at least some of you will remember. But after that, I think uh, the industry in Britain certainly went into something of a of a self-satisfied decline. And it's certainly true that in the that since the advent of digital uh, advertising and the use of the internet as a as a powerful comms medium, I think we really have rather lost our way. To the extent that uh, our industry Bible uh, campaign last week headlined, uh, its main headline was slim pickings that can for UK shops. Uh, And that is the probably 12th year in a row that campaign has had headline pretty similar to that, although we do occasionally pick up uh, one or two big awards but certainly the dominance in the advertising industry the creative advertising industry is now uh, I would say coming from from Asia uh, uh, and and particularly the emerging markets in Asia so that's how that's how it 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 appears from from my own uh, very limited and narrow uh, creative industry uh, but I have a panel fortunately who are significantly broader in in their outlook and I think can can very well handle this question, uh, both dealing with the, the premise about when and how we, we led the world creatively, uh, but also where, where we are now, and perhaps uh, where, we are, where we are heading. Uh, on my far left, your far right, uh, is uh, Teresa Wise, uh, who most recently has been responsible for strategy for Walt Disney, for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, Prior to that, uh, was a media specialist at at Accenture. Uh, Sanjay Nazarali, who is Director of Marketing, Communications, and Audience for BBC Global News. Uh, Jane, uh, who um, uh, provides, I think, for many of us, our our weekly dose of of media news. Uh, Jane Martison, who edits the Guardian Weekly, uh, sorry, the Guardian Media uh, section. So Monday mornings are, um, are certainly when we get our dose of you, Jane, uh, and Simon, who, for many of us, I think needs needs very little introduction. Simon has had two of the toughest PR gigs in the world, uh, having been responsible for rehabilitating the Queen and then for managing uh, Gordon Brown's PR in his last nine months at Number 10. Uh, Simon has also had a distinguished corporate career, most recently at Vodafone, and is now uh, responsible for UKTI, which I guess you'll talk a little bit about uh, in, in a moment. Uh, and finally, uh, Elaine Bedell, who is Director of Entertainment and Comedy for ITV. So, a rich and glittering panel. Um, do you want to start us off, yeah, Teresa? Thank
2: you. Um, thanks very much, William. Um, it pains me to say it, but um, I'm afraid I have to say that uh, Britain definitely isn't leading the world in uh, in communications. Um, I wanted, first of all, to deal with this uh, issue of, of the English language, which the uh, previous panel brought up so eloquently. And um, uh, I mean, the English language is definitely the global language of business and communications, um, which is great. Apart from the fact that it's American English rather than English English here. Um, Which is, to be fair, an accurate um, reflection of the dominant position that the US has in the world of business, so no surprises there. Um, What I want to do is actually take a sort of more business and economics um, uh, perspective on it um, and really to look at British media and communications companies and to question really whether they can be said or to look for evidence as to whether they can be said in any way to lead the world. I think, first of all, it's nice to reflect on the fact that Britain's had historically some really significant successes, so incredibly big ticks and maybe the basis that William was talking about uh, to lead the world. So we're obviously, as we know, the home of the English language. We've got a fantastic literary and creative heritage from William Shakespeare to Alan Aikborne. Uh We actually are a pioneer in television. And further than that, um, Tim Berners-Lee is credited with inventing the World Wide Web and he's a Brit. We have a fantastic tradition of quality German- journalism and we've been um, sort of fortunate enough or, or clever enough to have uh, created an empire um, to export British stuff too. So all that, you know, big tick, really good. So let's now look at today, you know, the list that one would look at of today's big media and communications brands in the UK and what, we, what do we look, think of when we, when we look at that? Well, we, you know, many of the people here, in fact, the BBC, ITV, Sky, Virgin Media, and then maybe on the comms side, we've got Vodafone and BT. So let's look at each of them briefly. Uh, the BBC has been the very fortunate recipient over its lifetime of many billions of pounds of, of public expenditure and gifted spectrum. So it's a unique position, which it has made incredibly good use of, and so it's not surprising that it has built up an incredibly strong franchise in the UK, and some countries which were parts of the British Empire. However, and this is somewhat challenging, but the myth propagated by the BBC that it's a globally respected news brand has, in my view, not been true for many years. True, the BBC World Service is a shining, um, slightly anachronistic beacon in the parts of the globe where there used to be a British Empire, but who in their right minds would watch BBC World Abroad if they actually had a choice of TV channels, and after all, TV is the more um, um, uh, modern communications device than than radio, um, uh, certainly in in more developed countries. And in terms of making a real economic uh, impact in international markets as an entertainment brand, um, BBC really remains, apart from in um, sort of Australia and Canada, small, smallish markets, strictly a minority sport. It's the US viewers that want to watch bonnet dramas on PBS, essentially, that, that watch it. And in fact, although the BBC is the largest exporter by a long way of U- British TV programmes, we export a fraction of what the US exports um, all over the globe. Turning to the U.K.'s largest commercial broadcaster, ITV. Um, actually, no one has ever heard of ITV outside the U.K., um, I'm afraid. I mean, Arguably, even within the U.K., um, ITV, while it's the home of some fantastic entertainment programs and brands such as Coronation Street, Britain's Got Talent, The X Factor, um, the question really, to my mind, is does ITV have a very big brand power over and above these incredibly strong program brands? If they were on another channel, would consumers really mind? Um, so I struggle to argue that the, program, that the programs resonate with consumers just because they are on ITV. Sky is an exceptionally well-managed brand, has a strong presence abroad, so has Sky Italia in Italy. It's building a presence in Germany. It's an impressive customer service and marketing machine, um, and it's not only bucked the recession but managed to grow throughout it. So incredibly impressive. British success, you think? Well, except it was started by a bunch of Aussies who actually operated entirely outside the confines of the British media establishment for many years, and they were started as a a bit of an anomaly. Virgin Media, an interesting exercise in rebranding. After all, if you look at where it came from, the previous companies in the cable sector, NTL, known by its its aggrieved consumers as NT Hell, um, Uh, actually was sort of seen below in brand terms as below British Rail um, uh, for customer service. And actually, it's been a very good new strong management that's done a very good job of both changing the customer service at grassroots level and then propagating or uh, garnering some of the brand equity from the Virgin brand. Had they not actually changed the company, then obviously that wouldn't have, have worked particularly well. BT, to look at the communications brands, uh, is regarded as a necessary evil by British consumers and it's a brand really by virtue of having a lock on a position historically. It certainly has no international presence. It's tried a couple of times, a couple of forays into the US and not succeeded either times. And within the UK, those employed by BT could effectively be said now to be working uh, for a pension fund rather than for its shareholders, unfortunately. Vodafone was started in the UK and was there at the outset of the consumer revolution in mobile. So it's one of the longest established consumer um, mobile brands. And it's internationalized its business pretty damn well, actually. It's um, uh, got a presence in most of continental Europe and India. Um, uh, It has no brand presence in the US, but it does have a financial interest um, however, um, I guess the issue here around mobile is that the mobile consumer agenda has been hijacked pretty well by devices. So when people talk about mobile, they talk about the iPad, they talk about the iPhone, they talk about um, those, the touch consumer interface. And needless to say, all the leading manufacturers of devices <laughs> don't reside in the UK, um, they're American or Asian or um, indeed Swedish. Finally, despite inventing the World Wide Web um, uh, and the home of the dominant digital language as Britain is, there are no leading international digital brands, no world leading, uh, which is kind of depressing. So I'm pretty sad to conclude um, that we'd be deluded toward ourselves, a position of leadership in the world, but I do think we could do better, um, and given our history, we do po- uh, probably have um, you know, the, the basis to do that, to, to do better in, in content, in digital, and on the pitch. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Theresa, for provoking every single member of the panel. (laughs) Exactly how we wanted to
3: start. Sanjay, would you like to speak for the BBC? Yes, sir, I'm not going to be remotely defensive about the BBC. I'm also not going to slag off Britain. I am, however, going to give every single one of you in this room a task. Because we can sit around here and whinge about this, and we can sort of, you know, look back to the the halcyon days of the empire and how wonderful life was, or we can actually do something about it. So I'm going to pitch you an idea. Now, imagine you've got a product. You don't know anything about this product whatsoever, except that on the back, it says made in Switzerland. Now, I will venture that everyone in this room would have some idea of what that sort of product might be, what its values might be. Um, And what's more, you'd all be really quite coherent in what you said about that simple thing made in Switzerland. We know that provenance is really powerful. It builds export markets. It builds margin. It, <clears throat> it means that that black skirt over there from Milan is going to cost a bazillion more than actually quite a similar one over there in Malaysia. It's not one from Malaysia. They're certainly not wearing a skirt either. Um, it means that our hearts are going to fall for that wonderful sort of alpha Romeo-ness, but that in the end we're going to opt for something more reliably Teutonic. Now, beyond black skirts and muscle cars, provenance imparts and impacts diplomacy, a nation's influence on the world stage. If you think about Switzerland again, its historic neutrality, the World Wildlife Fund, the Geneva Convention, the International Committee of the Red Cross, European Home of the UN, for national languages, to put us to shame by three, all of those mean that Switzerland's historic role as international mediator has actually been taken fairly seriously in the past. Now, so what about good old blighty? I remember running a wee research project, a lot weirder than anything Peter York might have run. Um, we asked respondents in this to, to give us their first associations, symbols to do with two things, America And England. And of course, it was all quite obvious in some ways, but there was one really striking fact there, which is that everything American was about 500 years younger than anything British. So, you know, we had the venerable Big Ben and Bonnie Prince Charlie and claridges and cricket and nightingales singing in Berkeley Square, if not JWT anymore, and the BBC World Service. Bless. See, the problem with bless and and anachronisms, and I would agree that there is a sense in which the World Service can sometimes be seen as anachronistic. The problem with it is it's not enough for us to continue to wield sufficient influence to drive Britain's cultural, commercial, and and political aims. And fine, Bronwyn said we have no money. We don't have very much money, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper to run a radio service than to build missiles. So, question, (laughs) do we want to export... Do we want to play a role in making the world a safer and fairer place? Do we want a a voice in the development of a global dialogue, ideas and scientific development, and indeed an exporting culture? The Foreign Secretary, William Hague very recently in in, in The Telegraph, I think it was on Sunday, wrote about selling the country, about building, and I'm going to quote here, a distinctive new global identity for Britain. If he genuinely wants this, and if we in this room want this, and we keep... Talking about how wonderful it would be if, then I'm calling for an investment in something called Brand Britain to discover and codify those contemporary symbols which will breathe new life into the values which have taken us centuries to develop. You know, all this stuff around fairness and free speech and cricket and fair play and diversity, you know, the multiculturalism that was spoken about earlier, liberalism, little L, a democracy, sort of. Um, that, that goes all the way back to the Magna Carta A press so free that even broadsheets are now insisting on giving themselves away. Now, we, we do have powerful values, but what we've not done is coherently developed a set of contemporary icons to drive those values forward. Yes, we've got Jamie Oliver, we've got lovely Dyson balls, and we've got Mr. Saatchi displaying whatever it is, toad fetuses in formaldehyde on unmade beds, whatever, but here's the rub. How or why can and does any of those say this is why Britain needs a place at this table? I'm not saying I don't love James Dyson's balls or the Turner Prize. What I am saying is we need to craft them into bigger messages about Britain. What we need is a brand book for brand Britain. A strategy which articulates what we're famous for, what we want to continue to be famous for, and then to use the Tracy Emmons and the Alan Sugars to evidence that strategy. Otherwise... We're a load of jewels in search of a crown. Not a million miles away from the ITV example. There is no crown, there's just a load of jewels. Where Britain has that great comedian, where Britain has that great opera, where Britain has that really cool young chef, rather than Britain has a unique global culture in which we want to play a part. This, of course, now, that's all very nice, all nice hyperbole, which you'd expect from someone from the BBC, but begs a tougher question. If we need a brand book for Britain, who's going to write it? and who's going to make sure it's implemented. Those of us who are marketers by training around this room will actually ask, well, who's the brand director? To use my previous analogy of the jewels, we've got a bundle of ambassadorial gems there. The BBC reaches a quarter of a billion people in 32 languages. The Burmese service alone reaches more people, just about as many people, actually, as EastEnders hits on an average night. We've got the Premier League, we've got the world's, richest football league which goes into 600 million homes in 202 countries which is particularly good because wikipedia only lists 196 countries in the world we've also got very high profile foreign aid some of the best-known charity brands from oxfam to save the children now who's pulling all of that together and turning it into something called britain (sighs) daft man sanjay it's the pm of course he's ceo uk plc Oh, well, hang on, is it the FCO? Maybe it's DFID. Actually, it's the MOD, because they spend more money outside the UK than anyone else. And that's the problem. Responsibility for Britain's brand is spread across myriad departments, often with divergent agendas. And that, you know, even if you do, even if you get all those government departments nicely joined up... You've still got a B bloody P mucking things up, and that's just their media relations. You all still have a B bloody A with their picketing trolley dollies. Yeah, And so long as that disjointedness continues, we're going to have a hard time investing coherently in the one thing that can actually safeguard our exports and our place at the cultural and diplomatic table. We've been too nice about this brand, and we need to grow teeth. So here's an idea to play with. What about a new role? Brand director... Britain. Someone who's remitted is to pull all the various elements which impact our reputation abroad and build them into a coherent comms strategy for all of us. Every one of us, every corpulent corporation, every government department, aid agencies, even the gods with golden metatarsals. That doesn't work actually at the moment, does it? No, gold plated metatarsals, not even. They'd all have to present themselves according to really clear brand guidelines issued by said brand director. Values, key messages, all the puffery that people such as myself deal in on a day-to-day basis, they would be centrally coordinated. We could build a Britain which is coherent, meaningful, directed, and which supports every one of us in our business, cultural, and diplomatic um, endeavours. We also have, I've got to do my plug, we also have uniquely, and I believe crucially, one national medium to disseminate our brand values. One of its public purposes is codified as bringing the UK to the world and the world to the UK. It's called the BBC. So, what do you reckon a practical way forward? A brand director for Brand Britain, if you like it, how are we going to make it happen?
1: Thanks, Sanjay. Thank you very much, Sanjay. I think the closest thing we have to a, a brand director for Britain is Simon Lewis. So, Simon, <laughs> why, why don't you pick us up from that? Um,
4: well, th- thank you for that. The, um, w- when, and it happened quite often, I got a difficult question in my last job briefing the lobby. Uh, I used to say I don't accept the premise of the question, which kind of gave me <laughs> a few minutes to think about my answer. But uh, I think you're right, William. I think we have to be very realistic about this question. I have... Uh, just come back from uh, a trip to New York under the auspices of uh, UKTI, which I'll come back to in a minute. Tudor Hospital bought me a drink at Soho House, any place I've been where they say, please remove your tie when you go in. Um, and I have to say, if you talk to people, and it wasn't a scientific study, but if you say to New York opinion formers, other than financial services, when you think of the UK, what do you think of? First of all, they think for a very long time, and then if you push them, they might say, Burberry, Uh, they might say the BBC, and I think the BBC has a tremendous international brand value. And I have to say this, if you push them a bit further, they will say Simon Cowell, because Simon Cowell, and you'll see from today's Fortune List and elsewhere, is seen in the US as being an exemplar, whether we like it or not, of the best of British communications. So I think a, a kind of dose of realism as to what we really do stand for and what people recognize us for obviously that's just the u.s. but it's very interesting just to kind of have that experience uh... i mean obviously on the branding britain point the organization i represent uk trade and investment is indeed the organization that kind of bridges the fco and biz and is there to help british companies export and to encourage inward investment Um, we have some fantastic sectors of which i think the creative industries sector is one. But again, I just think we have to accept that we are competing in a completely different environment to the one that William described of the 1980s. And you know, the idea that we just by definition now have the very best advertising, the very best television, the very best creativity, we have to work very hard to prove it. Um, the second point about, Teresa's point about Vodafone, I mean, Vodafone is an amazing success story Uh, As you quite rightly said, it was 25, 26 years ago when the founding chairman made the first phone call from just down the road in Trafalgar Square. Vodafone spotted an opportunity in the market. The regulatory environment was good because the then government made it possible to set up a mobile company at short notice. But my question would be, do we realistically think it's as easy now for a company like Vodafone to set up and succeed in the UK as it was in 1984? This is a company that went from having its first customer on New Year's Eve 1985 to now having 300 million customers globally and has done that from a UK base. And you have to ask yourself as a country whether the current environment, economically, regulatory, ever makes it possible for a great company like Vodafone to be created again. So I think that's something we need to challenge ourselves about and maybe it's a job for the director of Brand Britain, but it's also a job for us as a country to say, how do we continue? And there was a very interesting <coughs> conference yesterday uh, hosted by the uh, Times where, you know, UK CEOs were asked to be very realistic about the conditions that we need um, as a country to create a new Vodafone. Um, and my third um, and, and final point is... Um, because we can't get through a session without talking about soccer. Last time I just think to Julia, I talked about soccer, but I'm going to say something which I think is kind of relevant because what struck me during my time at number 10 um, was we do still internationally punch above our weight. If you go to a big international conference, whether it's Copenhagen or a Brussels summit, and it's, I'm not, this isn't a point about who is prime minister or not. Look at what's happened at the G20 this time. We, as a country, punch above our weight. Uh, and I think part of that is part of that is because we have a machine around prime ministers that makes it happen but I also think we are actually as a country in those situations better than others at communicating what we want to achieve and how we want to achieve it so I do think this concept of the British you know, Britain PLC punching above its weight is something we need to hold on to because I think it's a great virtue for the country the downside is and this is where you know, Jane and her colleagues come in, and I can see why it happens. But we have an amazing tendency as a result of that, I think, in some situations to build ourselves up to the most extraordinary level where the only thing that can happen is failure. So therefore, it was never, in my humble opinion, a possibility that England were going to win the World Cup. Um, but we got behind the English team, the media got behind the English team, and we gave it a huge push. But the reality is if we had been a bit more sensible about the aspirations of what we were going to achieve in the World Cup and the British media, and I'm not trying to sound pious at all, had kind of accepted that, then maybe we wouldn't be having the collective national nervous breakdown we are now. So, you know, we kind of take, I I think, some responsibility for it. But, you know, I I think net-net, we've got an awful lot to be proud of in our communication space, but I think we have to be very realistic... About the way we're perceived outside the UK, I think we have to be very realistic about the way in which we are. We should continue to create the conditions for another Vodafone to be um, to be created in the mobile or whatever other space it is. And thirdly, just ask ourselves as a country as whether sometimes, in a very un-British way, we overhype ourselves.
1: Right. So. Do you want to respond, Elaine, to the um, comments um, on ITV or uh, to the well question I'm, of whether Britain has talent? Or... Uh,
5: exactly. Britain has got talent. I'm going to confine myself very specifically to popular television, um, which is what I commission. Um, and obviously I manage Simon Cowell as best I can. Um, so, um, and I'm going to slightly take issue with Theresa. In fact, we do lead the world in terms of popular television. Um, the UK accounts for 41% last year of all global format sales. Um, and 67% of that UK total was contributed by independent production companies in the UK. So if you go anywhere in the world, it is likely that the most popular factual or factual entertainment formats that you watch in that territory were conceived, produced, and delivered in the UK, and then sold abroad. And that is um, an element of success which we rarely praise in the UK, and we should celebrate much more fulsomely. It contributes a lot of money to the UK... Um, and it also means that we have a really thriving creative industry in popular television here. And there are several reasons for that, and I have to say the BBC is one of them. We have a really healthily funded public service television um, broadcaster here in the UK, which is a competitive scheduler. And um, in other territories, public service broadcasting is sort of sidelined. Um, and it's not in the UK, and that keeps the commercial channels very healthy, and it means that it keeps the creative industries, the independent production companies, very healthy too. So um, one of the trends has been these big event uh, entertainment shows like Britain's Got Talent, now in 40 territories around the world, um, each doing their own sort of culturally slightly different version, um, but nonetheless sticking fairly rigidly to that format, X Factor, Pop Idol, Dancing with the Stars, um, Strictly Come Dancing in the UK, Top Gear. I, these are brands which are selling in, in territories all around the world. Um, and it's an incredible, it is an incredible UK success story. Um, physical game shows, um, a recent phenomenon, I'm afraid, started by me at the BBC. I commissioned two uh, rather slapstick shows called Hole in the Wall. Um, uh, where people had to fit themselves Tetris-like into shapes in the wall or fall into a pool of water. Um, one of the hardest sales I've ever had to make at the BBC. Um, sadly, decommissioned, now I've left, but last year sold to 13 other territories um, by Fremantle. Um, Total Wipeout, the show, another show I commissioned where people bounce off big red balls, um, uh, sold to 22 territories last year um, by Endemol in that case. Um, these are real British successes. We do lead the way in popular entertainment television, and we should be very proud of it.
1: Right. So, Jane, how does it look as an editor of the Media Guardian, pulling all of this together?
6: The, um, the coming last has, obviously, benefits and uh, disadvantages. The first thing is that I was going to say I completely disagree with the still-leading world, both the still and the leading and that, uh, conversely, the media sector does punch above its weight. Both of those lines have already been used. But I can now talk about what has been said. Um, I fundamentally disagree with the idea of brand Britain for the media sector. I think it's amazing, if you think of America, the most... I mean, okay, size, all those reasons, it, it dominates the media sphere in a way that we never can. Can you imagine brand America where Apple, Google, Microsoft, not to mention Oprah... Uh, Drudge, uh, the NBC all somehow being part of an umbrella group, only the BBC, only in Britain. Could you actually think that was a corporate idea? You know, Team America is, is government, it's the armed forces. It's not to do with creating a brilliant sector, the media sector. Conversely, I do think and as a journalist on this panel it's quite weird that I'm actually much more positive than Teresa about the media sector because I sort of find it astonishing that for such a tiny country, in the media sphere, and unlike football, we actually do incredibly well. Um, and as the only journalist, I thought, and nobody else has mentioned this, so I will, I thought we'd just look at newspapers and then brands. Um, so, and the, there's the sector I know best, and obviously the paper I know best is The Guardian. Um, Eleven years ago, when I joined The Guardian in America, I joined to go to New York, and I would phone up and say that I was from the Guardian and I got two reactions always the first was that I was working for an insurance company and I was trying to sell them insurance the second was oh you mean the Manchester Guardian I spent three years I came back in 2002 always that's what happened now we have um, a third of our 30 million unique users a month are in America um, we ha- ha- in December 2009, we actually had more American visitors to our site than we had in the UK. The UK in total is a third, 37% of our readers online, which means that almost two thirds of the Guardian's readers are overseas. This is a newspaper which is now one of the eight most read newspaper brands in the world. Two of those are in the Chinese language. Which has a, an ABC circulation of less than 400,000. That's an astonishing statistic. Now, I'm not going to talk about financial uh, monetization of that, fortunately, because as a journalist, I don't have to worry about that just too much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know. but <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure we'll come back to it. But I mean, in terms of clout and in terms of reputation, um, you know, not only do you have to go back to when I started the paper, but much further when the Manchester Guardian started in 1956, this fabulous um, slide which shows every single print edition where it was sold. We sold 650 copies overseas. Huh. That was We sold more in Colwyn Bay than we sold in the rest of the world. <laughs> to go from that to an organisation that is now known globally, particularly in America, and I want to talk about America and India because I think those two countries are where Media companies tend to do better in the UK because of the language and because of the history and also where the BBC is, is, uh, is very important. Um, I think that the reason we've done that is, is the same reason that, that other media brands that have worked um, overseas is because we have used the power of the web, actually the web has been an enormous threat, um, could even be a sort of cataclysmic threat to our industry. Um, but in, In fact, it's also a great opportunity, and the opportunity is in terms of the the overseas readership, but also this um, international presence. Um, The Guardian after 9-11, which took some time after 9-11, but pretty quickly afterwards, uh, realised there was a demand for what we have dubbed our uh, fabulous brand directors, uh, and there have been a few since 9-11, have dubbed the world's leading liberal voice. So in America, there was a demand when the entire country turned national security crazy for a news organisation that would be in Afghanistan or Iraq that would talk about the problems of Guantanamo Bay, that would talk about all these things that weren't being dealt with at home. And I think that's a quintessentially British thing. Um, it, it's, you know, using this tiny, small country, but actually talking about its international links and its international interests. And all the great newspaper brands, m- media brands that have done very well have done that. If you think of The Economist, you think of The Financial Times, Reuters. You know, Reuters is the quintessential, I mean, whether you say it's entirely British, but it was in London for, you know, hundreds of years until just a few years ago when it merged with Thompson and became the enormous Thomson Reuters. Um, And I think what's really interesting about it is, isn't that the power of the web? You know, you have basically the capacity to turn this incredibly local thing into something global. You can be a blogger in Afghanistan and can have an enormous reach. Well, if you take that in terms of sort of geopolitically, um, you have this tiny country with, you know, a population that's a, a... sadly increasingly a GDP that's a fraction of America or many of its rivals and yet it can actually have this great influence now I know we keep touching on the uh, monetisation front and that's, you know, that is a big issue but we are you know, that's, this is a sort of decade old transformation we are in the very early days of trying to work out how to make money I think this is where what we need is not brand Britain although Simon would be fabulous um, I think what we need is the government is a sort of commercial organisation that can actually make it possible for individual organisations to compete. And now I think I mean, we have to yeah. talk about the BBC. I disagree that the BBC is not uh, a great brand. I think, if you, particularly in America, but many places, actually many places, not just America, I mean, you know, the developing world, British media is the BBC. Mm. I mean, it, you know, having Britain in its name mm. is a great boon, and everything that media stands for, is summed up by the BBC. You know, its history. I think it has this fantastic uh, reputation. Now, I think commercially, though, it's a real problem, and I think it's a really interesting political debate going on at the moment. Um, BBC Worldwide. You know, in the next few days, is going to show that it's had a record year. It's doing fantastically well. Um, it, you know, whether or not the BBC Worldwide's position in America, where it has uh, expanded hugely, which you could say is a great thing for the BBC maybe could hurt the fact that many other companies can't do as well in America. I do think there is a problem with what Elaine said though, that when you have a situation where the great success stories apart from brands, BBC and sort of brands you know what they stand for, is you have a problem where Britain's got talent, a fantastic brand, which is effectively has been branded as the character of one human being. Who could tomorrow has signed a deal in America? Who could actually decide he's utterly uninterested in Britain? Wants to actually do all his production in New York or LA? And I think, as a British company, it makes no, you know that is not a British success story. That's a Simon Cow success story. That may even be a Piers Morgan success story if he does go to um, uh, to follow Larry King. Um, so I, I think that this is a, the debate should be about uh, helping these sort of great British brands. You know, I think these are plural, these are companies, these are ideas we may not even have heard about. But also talking about how the BBC can actually cooperate, perhaps, can actually be more of an enabler or a platform, um, as well as, you know, a great success. And I'd, in no way, I, you know, I think if I was possibly from any other paper, I would be saying that BBC should be uh, held back. And, I, you know, I really don't. I think the BBC is the most fantastic thing that Britain has in terms of media but I think it should be made to do more for the sector. Um, I suppose my final point is that um, with the economy the way uh, it's been the last couple of years, but I think also the way it's going to be the next few years, this is a really important topic, how we actually do well internationally, how we thrive, how we make money. And I don't get the sense from the government that it's such a great focus of attention, and that's a shame.
1: Thank you very much, Teresa, Do you want to come in?
2: Yeah. Uh, they're All great points. I, a couple of things I, I thought would be interesting to pick up on. I mean, the sales of formats on on ITV. And, um, it is a success story, but it's not that big an economic success story. It's you know basically you sell a format. It's not worth a huge amount. And we still do
5: better than either. I mean, uh, but the, the future, other point that, the uh, on, on Fremantle
2: is that it's in fact owned by Germans, <laughs> so, so it's, it's not the a
5: programmes are originated by it's British company. Yeah, and but, do you think there so is the
1: something about? I mean, I was just picking up on your point about the, the, the formats and, and the successes that ITV have had. Is there something distinctively British about them? And for anybody, is there something distinctively British about our brand and what Dutch we do? Or could yeah, they? The Big
5: Brother is not a UK could, they come, could they
1: come from anywhere? Do they happen to come from Britain? Or does the fact that they come from Britain add I, some value? I think
5: there isn't something that connects all those, all those UK-originated formats, except the fact that we know now that the US, the biggest markets, look to the UK to originate new programming. And that's to do with the... That's to do with the quality of the creative industry. That, that's what's driven this. That we have a thriving independent production sector. We have extremely good terms of trade, um, so that producers can benefit from their back so end, from their rights. Yes. There is a reputation that connects these things. And, and just to pick up on Jane's point about Simon, I mean, America's Got Talent is a brand that does not contain Simon Cowell. In no other territory does Britain's Got Talent have Simon Cowell in it. It is a format that has completely survived. Beyond its well, its,
6: its its incarnation of Simon. A separate deal to make sure there is a show with the Simon Cowell is isn't it? because that's a Simon Fuller. Uh, he, he no, that no, no. America's Got
5: Talent is produced yeah, by Simon, I know, but, but that's continue. why it,
6: he knows that that's a sort of that's a gap in his armory, isn't it? I mean, I'm just the point I was trying to make is that he, he. It's not as if he can't go and do it now after the success of Britain's Got Talent. Go and do. Go and make shows in America. He's just signed a massive deal to do that.
5: Well, he, he owns it. I mean, he, he produces it yeah. he's got talent. That's
6: been going for years. Yeah, but
5: that,
6: yeah. Anyway,
3: anyway. Sanjay. I'd like to believe Elaine. I mean, I'd like to believe that there's something in our genetic makeup that just makes us bloody brilliant at light entertainment yes. formats. I would, because it would it's make me genetic. feel. It's not
5: genetic. It's the terms of trade. It's the creation oh, of the BBC. Of there are really there are no, definite no, I, kind I, of factual I, reasons I, for I, it. I absolutely
3: accept that. My my concern about it is that those conditions are not necessarily ones which are going to stand the test of time. Now, I've sat on both sides of this rather difficult fence. I mean, I've worked in in commercial advertising and I've worked at the BBC. William's point earlier about the 80s and what happened in the 80s was a function of Madison Avenue becoming research-obsessed. I don't think it was genetically us that somehow were able to create the bartle Bogle, Hegartys of the world. I just think we dived into an opportunistic sweet spot and my slight concern about the brilliant light entertainment that we create, and it's not just light entertainment, it's drama and all the others, is that we're diving into a sweet spot at the moment. And I'm just not sure how, how sustainable that is. That's, that's, my, that's my worry about it.
2: Uh, and I think the other thing is that people have heard of the BBC. It doesn't mean that it's actually doing us economic um, uh, good. And I, th- I think that's... Um, you know, we, I think we, we don't realise what good needs to look like most of the time as as British companies um, to compete internationally.
6: It's almost that like terribly British uh, though, isn't it? Sort of um, amateur professional. You know, so we do these fabulous things but we can't quite work out a way to make it uh, as the next Apple or to make lots of money from it. We're all doing these fabulous things and it's sort of this... Uh, can't quite make it into the sort of hard-driven world. I mean, and yeah. actually, we're, we're completely ignoring the, the great successes, the sort of Vodafone, and yeah. but again, you know, I think Theresa's point about that how the mobile, this amazing growth area of mobile mm. communications, has been completely hijacked um, by device manufacturers, none of whom operate no, I here.
4: It, if, if I, may just, yeah. I mean, see, I think the thing about the BBC is that it is a trusted brand, and I think is you know, if you look at these things internationally, there are very few media brands that are trusted in the same way as the BBC. I think it's an enormously powerful attribute. And I know it brings with it a certain set of obligations, but to have a trusted media brand, you know, owned within this country, you cannot underestimate how important that is, you know, for what it speaks for Britain more widely. And that was one thing that really struck me during my time at Downing Street. I I think on Vodafone... You're right. I mean, it is a worry that the next generation of mobile operators, not mobile operators, but the next generation of what people are going to get from the mobiles will not come from UK-based companies. And my concern is, which is a kind of slightly narrow point, is that what will happen is that companies like Vodafone potentially will end up being the people who just deliver what's called the dumb pipe, as in the networks, and we will end up with all the creative stuff that goes into mobile has been generated, unfortunately, outside the UK. And that would be a great shame because we pioneered mobile. But that is the risk. But you
1: do get a sense that we are no longer as confident or as proud of our, of our brand reputation as Britain as, as we were. So first BT dropped British Telecom, then BP drops British. I mean, there's that sense that we, we, we kind of now want to hide it rather than be so proud of it. I'm going to throw it open to the floor and, and take some questions and comments. So do you want to can we have a mic down here?
0: Thank you, Di Burton. Um, we talked about bringing this money into the UK and what are the classic British brands. Whatever one might think of the monarchy, the money that they bring into this country is staggering. And I also remember I was doing some work with the UKTI ten years ago before you were called UKTI, taking a trip of, um, on behalf of the Institute of Directors to New York and they were showing American companies what it's like to do business in the UK. And the brochure they presented had a scratch and sniff card which was about scratching the smell of strawberries and cream and British fish and chips. And this is the way that they were selling Britain ten years ago to American companies to get them to come and trade here. Uh,
7: I thought the panel were extremely British, uh, with the exception of Elaine, in that they were so self-deprecating, negative, and showed a lack of ambition uh, about the achievements of the British media. Um, and you were very critical. Every time you mentioned Vodafone, oh, but they're only supplying a dumb pipe, or the BBC is not really a... uh, It was full of... And even when Sanjay produced his comment about a brand direction, he was rubbished or ignored by the other panel members. I thought there was a real (laughs) lack of confidence and and ambition in in that display. And the the fact that defining brand values for British media as an impossible task does not mean it should not be attempted, because it would be worthwhile just to have a go at it. Um, So I thought, apart from Elaine, who trumpeted some of our triumphs, the rest of you were very down on us, unduly so.
1: Thank you. Uh, Peter York's been very quiet all morning, so I think we're going to allow him to ask a
8: question or make a speech. First, (laughs) I think it's a measure of how tremendously posh this room is that we've left out of account a whole raft of businesses, meaning yours, William, originally, that have communications in their name. Now, is this a category error? People who communicate and underwrite financially communication, in which we built very, very big positions. WPP, when I say WPP is number two or number three, I get an immediate email from Martin <laughs> Sorrell saying, No, we are top. That's a kind of... I mean, it's a position at risk. I absolutely accept that. But nonetheless, it's a very big position and we haven't talked about that at all. And I don't think that's a category error. I think we should have talked about that. Second thing is to say how hugely I endorse Sanjay's idea about a brand director for Britain. It's not... The problem is the word brand or the use of marketing speak because it's out of fashion. But... All the same, knowing the Britain Abroad Task Force and what it tried to do and put together the various bodies which were supposed to represent Britain in a ramshackle way, which all fell apart again. I know it's a very, very important ambition. And I want to apply for the job.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I'm sure... I have a... I mean, I I am ashamed to say I'm I'm old enough to remember in 1966... um, Harold Wilson started an I'm Backing Britain campaign and then we had the horror of Cool Britannia in 1997. Oh, but I wonder what the panel think about the about Peter's point and, and the point that was
3: made earlier about Brown Britain can and supporting just it. Let's jump into that, that gentleman's but, comment yes, about sir. how self-deprecating we were? Because, yeah. William, yeah. you, you did... I, I can't remember who it was. Someone talked about how we, we big ourselves up a bit. I don't think we do. I think as a nation we don't enormously like success. I mean, I think... If you look, I I worked at MTV for quite a long time, and and for me, the essence of it was anti-heroism. You know, all the way from Hamlet through to Morrissey and David Bowie, and we always liked the ones who are slightly effed up. Frankly, you know, we only liked Robbie Williams after he'd been through his nemesis and had come back. We loved Wayne Rooney so much more when we identified with the tragic hero about him. And I do think there's something sitting within us that, that doesn't shout our successes often enough. And I, I feel that very strongly, particularly when I talk about the World Service. We sit there and we apologise for the fact that we've got a quarter of a billion listeners in 32 languages. And we are to apologise. I completely agree with you, by the way. And, Peter, you can't have the job, because I'm going for it.
2: <laughs> um, actually, um, Peter's point is, is very well made and, and well taken. I, I focused... On consumer brands, um, really, just to just to make it uh, containable. But actually, our B two B brands are world class, and WPP is a shining example. As are financial investor relations companies like Brunswick um, uh, and Financial Dynamics, and, and and so on. We we do absolutely lead the world there.
4: I want to agree yes, with Peter as well. Uh, I'd like to agree with Peter. Um, but I'd also like to say, because he, he, it's a very good point, I mean, WPP like Vodafone had an incredibly powerful buccaneering spirit. I mean, when Martin Sorrell started WPP, it was, someone will correct me, Wireless Plastic and Products, which wow. was a shell company, thank you, which was reversed into a tiny advertising industry. So like Vodafone, WPP was created in an amazingly buccaneering way, and I think Sometimes the gentleman over there, maybe you're right. We should un- we underestimate the fact that we have a very powerful entrepreneurial and buccaneering spirit in this country that perhaps we underestimate at our peril.
6: Can I? Yep. Um- Peter, I think you're only saying that because you really want the job. I mean, brand director, isn't that what Prince Andrew is supposed to do? I mean, aren't we supposed to have these characters who go around the world saying, we're British, this is what it's about? I mean, what, do you, what is that person? You know, what you have to have is hugely successful companies. You see, I completely take issue at this point that we're all terribly negative. I mean, particularly as a journalist, I thought I was being hugely positive earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we are an incredible success story. I mean, it's true that when you have, as I said, at 41%, uh, you know, we are, uh, in terms of the indie sector, we do export a huge amount of programmes. I mean, the issue we're taking, of course, is that each individual programme, you know, the support for that is very small. You talk to the indies. You know, my argument is that ITV perhaps is not getting the benefit of that in terms of brand. Um, so, but... I think there is a huge amount to, uh, to be incredibly impressed by this whole idea of we are a tiny nation and yet we're all, you know, we are actually talking about which we've all disagreed with. I don't know if anyone in the audience believes that we still lead the world. Um, I don't think that's true. And I don't think anybody else does as well. But I, I think we're being quite positive. Really? I
2: think a,
5: sorry, I was just going to say, I think the trouble with the brand director thing is we just, and this is me being very British, I just, we just would do it so badly. I mean, it would, <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool Britannia. It would be toe-curlingly embarrassing. <laughs> but you don't, the
3: thing is you don't want to be cool. I Unless Simon did it, of course, or Peter, <laughs> well, and then it would be cool Britannia, Britannia happened, I mean, the one thing that you know about cool. There's only one thing that you can ever really know about cool, which is at some point it's going to be uncool. <laughs> and, and that was when, you know, what, one of those moments you saw, I can't even remember what magazine it was, was had to sound like Kate Moss and, and one of the Gallagher brothers on the front and Uni and you just, uh, My heart slightly sank because it was a bit like looking at what would one day be the Hard Rock Cafe. <laughs> it was so clearly going to become the most embarrassing thing ever. And,
1: <clears throat> Anything else from the floor?
3: I
0: I would
2: love to hear what you have to say about the Olympics. The marketing of the Olympics has been odd Uh, for me as an American. That logo and those mascots and you guys have had some time to think about it. I know many of you have been to China to look and learn and you've been to other Olympics and Europe has
0: done Olympics for a long time. What is the branding of Britain going to be in
4: 2012? Simon, do you want to take that? Well, the most extraordinary thing about the Olympics, because this came up in Cabinet a few times when I was there, is that extraordinarily for a British project, it is both on time and on budget. I know that sounds platitudinous, but it is remarkable. Every single Olympic Games in living memory has neither been on time nor on budget. So as a country, I'm going to have positive mode here, we should be incredibly (laughs) pleased about that. We are going to have a very successful Olympic Games and it's going to be on time and on budget, and it is going to have an incredibly powerful regenerative arm to it, which no other city has succeeded in delivering. If you go to Sydney, which I've never been to, apparently the stadium there is completely desolate. If you go to Barcelona, all these cities have had huge ambitions, and I think our realism about what we want to achieve with the Olympics is going to be delivered. So I think that's the very positive news. I. Um, On the branding front and on that aspect, I'll leave it to other experts in the panel, but I do think, as a showcase for this country, 2012 couldn't be better timed. Uh, Hopefully the economy will be moving in the right direction. There'll be other contextual things like the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. There'll be all sorts of, hopefully you might've even won the bid for the 2018 World Cup. I think in contextual terms, it couldn't be better how we brand it and the messages I think of others to talk about but I just genuinely think that it's going to be a fantastic event and I think we are doing everything right at the moment.
1: I think it's a great question because I think the branding point is a really troubling one for us. I mean we had Boris Johnson on the Route master bus at Beijing and if that's meant to epitomise Britain is that, is that what we want? Any thoughts from the panel on what we would want to epitomise British brand? Sanjay, Jane? I mean I,
6: I think it's a great question. I think it's, a, a, you know, it's only two years away. Um, and you are speaking like a PR man. <laughs> you oh, I problem. do No, but I do think um, it's a great opportunity. And, uh, but actually, we haven't heard as much about the legacy as, or the sort of idea and the brand and what it's for. You know, if you think about it, we're going to have these desperate, if the economists are to be believed, desperate two years. And then we have this sort of what could be a festival of Britain for our age. Um, what are we going to try to do now what we're not going to be able to say is we're going to have more gold medals than anyone else mm. are we going to be able to say we're going to actually show a multicultural Britain, we're going to show you know, parts of East London that have completely regenerated these are great stories mm. and you're right you know, Boris Johnson on a bus doesn't quite work for me but it, it, you, there are ways of doing yeah. it, like, it could be incredibly exciting and could show Britain at its best I think that we sh- sort of should be doing that now
7: Take the mic. I mean, is there a kind of question lurking about just what is Britain for? I mean, some people have hinted at it. I think, Sanjay, you were saying multiculturalism, tolerance, diversity, uh, and fairness, and so on. But for everybody who's older than, I don't know, about 12, we know that hasn't always been like that in Britain. Uh, And that maybe there's too much emphasis on trying to uh, temper their perception, Uh, in the world deal with the branding and not really ask the questions around identity. So we teach citizenship studies uh, in school, but no teacher can tell you what that is or what it means uh, to be Britain. And we kind of run the risk of papering over uh, the reality and trying to deal with the branding issues too much. Do we need to sit back and say just what it is uh, to be British? What do we want to stand for and what do we want to achieve in the world? Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review uh, first, just a practical point about rusty old pipes and things. I mean, I run an online TV company, and I can tell you there are large parts of the United States where um, some of the connections and things are not very effective, and it causes us quite a lot of problems trying to use some of the new media in different formats. And I've always been quite impressed with the infrastructure that's been built in the U.K., and, you know, if the next generation of images that can com- Communicate what is British is going to be dependent on infrastructure. Then, you know, the pipes and things might come back into their own. But the second thing is um, a lot of the ideas about what is Britain have been described and projected in uh, quite old media terms. I'm very conscious that my 12-year-old is posting cartoons and made-up videos into networks with thousands of kids, including ones from Australia and other places. What's happening below the radar of the age range here? Are there ideas about Britain? We did a piece of work a couple of years ago with Middlesex University where they looked at not just multicultural Britain but how many economic subsets there were in Britain, whether it was all the Chinese community who may have started off in the restaurant business, but then Populated large chunks of financial services, some of the Asian communities. Why is Bollywood running stuff in Nottingham? What's happening below the radar that is and still seems to be quite dynamic? I mean, it's a question to the panel because I can see and feel things happening out there, but nobody's really commented on it. And it's not going to go through the traditional channels in the next wave of new media. It's
5: interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm very aware that my kids. online have uh, have no boundaries i mean that the sort of their notion of privacy is completely different to my notion of privacy they're sort of you know they've grown up with cctv they've had facebook they've they've laid out their private lives for lots and lots of people to to view yeah. and see and i think it's possible they also have very different ideas about boundaries and borders um, uh, you know that they they are communicating so easily with as you say they're playing xbox games with people in australia live they communicating all the time in a very kind of cosmopolitan way. And I think it's possible they have a quite different sense of identity um, and that that could be true of, a, of, the, of that generation.
3: I mean, I've used the word brand to be deliberately provocative and silly, and I know you're all rumbling for lunch, and, and um, so I use that word in, in a sense a bit, a, a bit glibly. I suppose my feeling is that your reputation, your brand, whatever you want to call it, is actually your conscience as an organisation and in the case of a brand if one were able to say this actually is what we stand for and this is what we believe in then in a sense if you don't perform according to that you've fallen down and you can look at yourself your brand is in, in that sense I mean you know I bang on about the BBC and impartiality and and those things and trying to be balanced and those sorts of things. and that brand is actually quite powerful because when we fall short of it and we do because journalists do rarely make mistakes um, at least it is there to serve as a conscience to try and bring us back and so I actually think it would quite be useful in helping not paper over the cracks, but actually getting the polyfiller out.
2: Um, I just wanted to pick up on the point about um, uh, the uh, the youth of today, and uh, just to pick on one segment, which is kind of interesting, because I was at Disney, and the interesting thing is the preschool segment and the uh, sort of tween segment in different countries have got more in common with each other than they have with other generations, which is, I'm, I'm sure, something that you guys, you guys are, are, are very aware of. So. I, although I think there's a predisposition, particularly post-preschool, to do more um, authoring and so on, the economic weight is still actually even more with the global brands than in other, um, in, in, in other generations.
6: I explained it to my then six-year-old why it was that he should support England, because he, uh, he would make the point, well, such and such plays for Arsenal and actually my favourite team, Manchester United, I'm going to support Portugal because of Ronaldo. Very wise. Yeah, very <laughs> wise. <laughs> they also, they just, they just want the ones that's going to win. <laughs> we have to make Britain the one that's going to win. Really.
3: <laughs> that's really interesting. I mean, when, when EasyJet launched, um, and you remember, they ran those, um, those, those ads for you know, get, getting to Amsterdam because you had know, a price for a pair of jeans. And actually, one of the interesting things that, that we found at MTV at the time was, bizarrely, Travel makes you more British. Travel makes you more who you are because actually you suddenly confront that which you are not. We're not really Londoners in London. It's only really when we go to dim and distant places. I'm not going to piss anyone off. um, But we go to (laughs) dim and distant places. One more
9: question before we go. Thanks very much. My name's Caroline Cecil. Um, Just one point, really, about uh, a brand manager for Britain. With all due respect to Simon who I think is absolutely wonderful and indeed Prince Andrew. I think one of the great things about Britain is that we, don't, we haven't had one with the odd aberration like Cool Britannia and that things have sort of come up on their own, sort of um, companies have come up with brilliant ideas. A second point sort of picking up on uh, what Jane was saying about the the press being free um, and uh, the success of The Guardian worldwide um, in the internet, not raising any money but being brilliant. Um, I think one of the things that has happened particularly with the media is that anyone under the age of 30 feels that if they're paying for something, they're making a terrible mistake. So they expect to get their news on the internet, they use YouTube and all sorts of things like that. Um, for nothing and I think that that's something that for our generation it's difficult to um, understand and work out how it's going to sort of survive long term.
1: I think I'm going to wrap us up there because Julia I know wants to get everybody on the boat. Uh, I would like to thank all of the panel who I think have done a fantastic job of treading that line between British self-deprecation and overweening arrogance and and delusion that might lead us to believe that we can continue to punch above our weight. Um, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you all very much indeed. Jane has promised to take personal questions on monetizing the Internet.